0: I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we make our way through Paul's letter that he wrote uh, to the church in Corinth uh, uh, about 55 AD. Uh, We come to chapter 10 and we're going to be considering verses 14 through 22 for the sermon today. But just for context, I'll begin reading in verse 1. So let us once again give ear to to the reading of God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there was one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That the food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask this blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, I want you to consider what are some of the most common sins that you typically fall into? Perhaps it's lust, perhaps it's anger. Perhaps it's pride or materialism. Indeed, if you were to compile a list of the top 10 sins that beset people in our country, I doubt we would find on that top 10 list the sin of idolatry. None of you, I presume, have a shrine at home that is dedicated to a particular god or idol. None of us are tempted to bow down to images or to light incense or offer sacrifices to them. Indeed, as we read of these events taking place in the Old Testament, the Israelites making a golden calf, for example, or the Corinthians being tempted to go into the temples and eat meat that has been offered to idols, we might scratch our heads and wonder, what's the draw in that? What's the temptation? And indeed, we might think that idolatry is something that we in our enlightened scientific age In 21st century America, we've gotten over that sin. Well, as we consider our passage today, I would suggest to you that, in fact, idolatry is something that is common to all mankind. And it is something that we constantly, even as the people of God, constantly struggle with and therefore must flee from. Well, as we consider our passage today, you'll recall that the Apostle Paul has been addressing the topic of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. It's something that he picked up all the way back in chapter 8. And there were those in the church of Corinth that claimed to possess a certain type of knowledge, and this knowledge, which basically said that idols aren't real things, they don't really exist, they're just things made with human hands, whether of stone or metal or wood. And since idols don't really exist and they're not really real... It's perfectly okay for them to go into the pagan temples and eat the meat that had been offered to idols. Well, Paul, first of all, rebuked them for their so called knowledge and showed how their knowledge did not build up or edify their brothers. As a matter of fact, it caused their weaker brothers to stumble, those who recently had come out of idolatry. He said, You're going to lead those people back into that sin. But then in chapter 10, he begins to retrace the history of Israel. And he showed that even though all of the Israelites who came out of the Exodus, all of them experienced that great redemption of God and experienced partook of those spiritual blessings that God gave them in the wilderness, which were types and signs of both baptism and the Lord's Supper, even though all of them partook of those blessings, Very few of them actually made it to the promised land. The vast majority of them experienced God's judgment in the wilderness. Why? Because of their sin and unbelief. And so as an example for us, the Apostle Paul says, don't be like the Israelites in the wilderness. And so he goes to show how these Corinthians in dabbling with idolatry are no different than the Israelites of old in the wilderness. And he says that you do this at the peril of your own soul you see that pattern of sin and rebellion was written for our sake so that we would not follow in their footsteps and so there is nothing new under the sun the same temptation that the israelites faced in the wilderness was the same temptation faced by the corinthians is the same that we face today in in 21st century america but another thing that does not change is the fact that god is faithful As Paul tells us in in verse 13, he will never let us be tempted beyond our ability. And by his strength, we can stand and use his provided way of escape. And so that's why Paul in our passage in verse 14 says, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. It's as if he's saying there's the emergency exit. Take it. Get out of the burning building. You see, in light of Israel's habitual sin of going after false gods, we who have experienced an even greater exodus, uh, being redeemed from the tyranny of sin and Satan, we should flee any and all temptation to idolatry. And so he says, I speak to you as sensible people. And here, I, I don't think Paul's being sarcastic. He's not insulting their intelligence. But rather, I think he's appealing to their common sense. He says, think about it for a second. Just think about uh, the, the fact that you as a Christian are engaging in idolatry. And by way of comparison, the Apostle Paul turns our attention to another meal that the Corinthians regularly partook of, namely the Lord's Supper. He speaks of the cup of blessing and the bread which we break, referring, of course, to the supper of our Lord. He speaks of the, this, uh, this cup of blessing, which is, of course, the, the cup that was sanctified by the Lord. Uh, to, to bless the cup of blessing means to give thanks for it. Since the typical Jewish prayer began with the words, blessed be God. Uh, during the Passover feast, for example, there were four prayers that were recited as the host or the, the head of the table would lift up the cup of wine. And he would give blessings to God for all the various uh, parts of his creation. And it would start off by saying, blessed be God who has given us X, Y, or Z. Therefore, that cup that he would raise as he gave the prayer or gave the thanksgiving was called the cup of blessing. Likewise, our Lord Jesus Christ, after uh, partaking of of the Passover, instituted the Lord's Supper. And what did he do when he took the cup? Well, he blessed it. He gave thanks for it, blessing God, giving thanks for the provision of bread and wine, but also... When we ask the Lord to bless the cup or to bless the bread, we also ask him to consecrate those elements for not only our physical benefit, but our spiritual benefit as well. And so that's why the Apostle Paul can ask rhetorically uh, in saying, is the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation of the blood of Christ? The answer to that question is, yes, it is a participation Now, this word translated participation is the Greek word koinonia. Perhaps you've heard it before. It's one of those Greek words that have made its way into our everyday usage. Koinonia, which means communion or fellowship, a a, a partaking, a sharing of something. And when Paul speaks of the cup, drinking of the cup being a participation or a communion of the blood of Christ, I think he's explaining what our Lord means. When our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the meal and he held up the bread and said, this is my body. And when he held up the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see, Jesus wasn't saying that the bread becomes his body. He wasn't saying that the the wine somehow magically transforms into his blood. He's not, we shouldn't take him literally there. But neither should we understand our Lord to be saying that the bread and the wine are mere signs of his body and blood, mere memorials or symbols. As with all sacraments, you have a physical sign, but also a spiritual reality that that sign points to. And so when Paul says that the cup which we bless is a participation of the blood of Christ, he's telling us that when we receive the sign, we also receive the spiritual reality. So as certainly as you drink from the cup, as certainly as you eat the bread, you get the spiritual reality that that those two signs point to, namely Christ and all of his benefits. In the same way that the Israelites in the Old Testament, uh, in, in the wilderness, when they drank from that spiritual rock, they drank from Christ himself. So we too, when we take up the cup of blessing, we receive what that cup points to. We get the reality. It's a communion. It's a participation of Christ himself. So the act of eating at the Lord's table unites us more and more to him since he is the host and we commune together with him. That's why we speak of this table as more than something we do in remembrance of him. It's more than just something to remind us of what Christ did for us, but it also enables us to partake of the spiritual benefits, Christ, his body and blood, and what that means for us. I think the Heidelberg Catechism summarizes this teaching very well when it asks the question, what does it mean to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood of Christ? It goes on to explain it means not only to embrace with a believing heart all the sufferings and death of Christ and thereby to obtain the forgiveness of sins and life life eternal, but moreover also to be so united more and more to his sacred body by the Holy Spirit who dwells both in Christ and in us, that although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are nevertheless flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone and live and are governed forever by one spirit as members of the same body are governed by one soul. Here I think they get that language uh, from 1 Corinthians as Paul previously said in chapter 6, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. In the same way that a husband and wife become one flesh, so we become one with the Lord as we commune together with him. And that's what the Lord's Supper not only symbolizes, but it also enables us to enjoy that union with Christ. And so it's important to note here, in, as in the same way in the context of fleeing sexual immorality, as in chapter 6, so here with idolatry, the Apostle Paul first and foremost reminds us of that close spiritual union we have with Christ Jesus. We are one with him. We are, we are united together with him. We have the same spirit, even though he's in heaven and we're on earth. It's the spirit who unites us. And so therefore, as a motivation, as and motivation for fleeing sin, sin, whether it be sexual immorality or in this case, idolatry, it's that union with Christ that motivates us. Well, not only does the Lord's Supper symbolize our union that we have with Christ who is in heaven And we on earth, but it also symbolizes the union that we have with one another. And that's the point that the Apostle Paul makes in verse 17 when he says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You see, as we partake of this one meal together, as we eat of the bread together, we are reminded of the fact that we are one body. We are part of the body of Christ. And so you see both a vertical element, our union with Christ, but also a horizontal element where we're united together. But it's only because we are united to Christ and feed upon him that we therefore are united with one another. And so we should keep that in mind as we live our lives, as we partake of the Lord's Supper. We shouldn't only not only think of what the Lord has done for us, but how we ought to treat one another. Well, now shifting from new covenant realities, the benefits we have in the Lord's Supper, to old covenant realities, the Apostle Paul turns in verse 18 and he says, Consider the people of Israel. Literally, he says, See Israel after the flesh. And he reminds his readers of the fact that those who ate of the sacrifices that were offered in the temple, whether it be the Levitical priests who were able to get a portion, of the sacrifices given. That's how they got their meals every single day. Or the worshipers, the one who would bring the offering, they too would be able to feast on these offerings, communing together with the Lord. Uh, We're told here that they became participants. This is the same, uh, it's a related word to that word koinonia. They became participants of the altar. That is, they shared in its holiness and communed together with God. I, see, uh, I think we see this most clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where God gives the law with regard to the Levitical priests, that they will receive uh, food from the altar. He says, the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them you see what the Lord did there as he was talking about the Levitical priests, First, he says they'll receive the food from the altar. They're, they're, as it, it's as if they're eating from his table. But then he goes on to say that the Lord himself is their inheritance. So in eating from the Lord's table, they commune together with him and receive union together with God. The same thing that happens here is what happened in the Old Covenant. They're participating together with God as they eat at his table. Well, at this point, the Apostle Paul anticipates an objection. As he's using the analogy of the Lord's Supper or or eating uh, from the sacrifices of the altar, perhaps the Corinthians might object. Well, wait a minute, Paul. When you talk about the Lord's Supper or when you talk about these Old Testament sacrifices, both of those things are forms of worshiping the living and true God. So, of course, there's a real participation Of course, there's a real communion with God because God is real. He really exists. But those idols made with human hands, they don't really exist. And so there's nothing going on here. I can go to the pagan temples. I can eat the meat. uh, I, I can join the festivities, all the while knowing that none of that is real. Well, here the Apostle Paul anticipates this objection. He says, well, wait, what do I imply? Am I implying that idols are real? No, he's not. But then he turns in verse 20 and he says, I, No, I imply what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. You see, whether they off, in the ancient world, whether they were offering sacrifices to Zeus or Aphrodite or Apollo, Paul reveals the true character of all such idolatry. He peels back the veneer and he shows that at the end of the day, All all idolatry is demonic in its form. It's demons that are inspiring and motivating people to engage in this false type of worship. And of course, that has been Satan's strategy from day one. Think about how he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. The true form of worship that they owed to God, Satan came and offered a counterfeit. Has God really said? Does God really have your best interest in mind? You see, when in getting them to partake of the forbidden fruit, he ultimately got Adam and Eve to engage in false worship. They, they pledged allegiance to the serpent rather than to the living God. And he continues to offer these counterfeit forms of worship in every day and age. That's why the Apostle Paul can speak of this in Romans chapter 1 when he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Whenever we exchange the truth about God for a lie, whenever we worship the creation, whether it be things around us, or ourselves, rather than the Creator, we are engaging in idolatry and doing exactly what Satan and his minions would love us to do. Well, you can also anticipate another objection amongst the Corinthian readers would say, well, Paul, I would never do such a thing. I would never worship a creature. I'm only worshiping the living and true God, the Creator. And as long as I'm sincere in my worship, Can't I worship him however I like? You see, that was the same exact sin that the Israelites fell into. Think about that golden calf episode in Exodus chapter 32 and Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the law before he could even make his way down the mountain. The Israelites built a golden calf. Well, why did they build that golden calf? They built that golden calf because they wanted to worship God in the way that they wanted to. You see, they weren't worshiping other gods at that point, at least in their minds. They thought they were worshiping Yahweh, the God that had redeemed them in the, in, by building this golden calf. And yet, of course, the Lord condemns them for their actions. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about when people offer sacrifices to idols, that they're offering sacrifices to demons, we typically think of the pagans doing that, whether it be the pagans in first century Corinth or those pagans uh, living in the ancient world. But it's interesting that if that in verse 20, that word, at least in the ESV, that talks about pagan sacrificing. That word pagan is not there in most manuscripts. It was probably added later to clarify, but I think as a mistake. You see, when the Apostle Paul talks about people sacrificing to demons, it's not the pagans he has in mind. It's the Israelites. It's the Israelites because he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32, where we find the song of Moses. Towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy, as after Moses had given the law for the second time to that second generation of Israelites who were preparing to enter the land of Canaan, he sang a song. And in this song, he recounts the history of Israel leading up to that point. And in that song, he shows that although the Lord was faithful to provide for his people, Israel continued to sin and rebel against God. He says in verse 16, they stirred the Lord to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods to gods that they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You see here, Paul is quoting from Moses. He's quoting from the history of Israel. And all the Israelites thought that they were worshiping God in their own way. Moses shows that, in fact, they were worshiping demons because they were being led astray by those satanic temptations. You see, God is not only concerned that we worship Him, He is also concerned that we worship Him in the right way. Jesus tells the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, that the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, Jesus says, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So often, this passage is quoted to sort of justify that we could worship God any way we want. Rather, uh, unlike the Old Testament, where you have to go to the temple and go through all these prescribed forms to worship God, in the New Covenant, we could worship God however we want as long as we do in spirit and truth. More loosey goosey. But you see, Jesus is not opening things up, He's restricting it. Did you notice what He said? Those who worship God, must worship in spirit and in truth. So unless you're worshiping the right God in the right way, you're engaging in idolatry. And so here we can see that idolatry is much bigger than the simple act of bowing down to a metal or wooden image. Idolatry is whenever we put our will or our desires in front of God's. Whenever we seek to do things our way, Rather than his way. That's why the Apostle Paul can say that covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry starts up here. Calvin tells us that our minds are idol factories, constantly churning out God in our own image in order to please ourselves. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says that when they do this, they're not worshiping God, they're worshiping demons who want to draw us away from the worship of the true God, who want us to exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship the creatures rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. And so in the same way that we have real communion with Christ in the Lord's Supper, so also those who gauge in idolatry have real communion with these evil spiritual forces. That's why the Apostle Paul then uh, tells them that I do not want you to be participants, the same word there related to koinonia. I don't want you to be participants with demons. Psalm 135, which we will sing after the sermon today, says that the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. It's a lie to think that idols, since they're not real, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have hands, but they can't touch. They have feet that they can't walk. That somehow they are powerless. Worship. Is powerful. And what we see here, when the the psalmist says that those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them, we see a very important lesson for us to learn. You are what you worship. You are and become like what you worship. There's no way that you could remain detached from what you constantly adore. And so as a form of judgment for those who worship dumb idols, God says, well, you're going to become like those dumb idols. You're going to become spiritually blind and unable to participate in the blessings which God gives us as we worship him. Jesus says that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Whenever we engage in false worship, we become like that. And so as silly, at least in our minds, our our Western minds of, of bowing down to an idol. I wonder what the first century Corinthians would think about us as we constantly pull out our iPhones and stare at the screen. You become what you worship. You become what you love. And so that's why the Apostle Paul then goes on to say that you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. The Corinthians wanted it both ways. While naming the name of Christ that they had received in their baptism and partaking of the Lord's Supper, they also frequented pagan temples for, the, for a free meal and the social benefits that it entailed. But God. As he did in the Old Testament, so now he demands exclusive loyalty of his covenant people. In our reading of the law last week, we read in James 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose... That the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. See, Paul has always already reminded his readers that they are united to Christ and that their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. In that context, he he showed how ludicrous it was to then engage in sexual immorality. Shall I take me, uh, my body as a member of the body of Christ and join it together with a prostitute? Far be it. So likewise, how ludicrous would it be for us as temples of the Holy Spirit to then waltz into a pagan temple or any other place of false worship? And in so doing, we provoke the Lord, who is jealous for his people. We provoke him and put him to the test, just like Israel in the wilderness, who time and time again put Christ to the test, as Paul says in verse 9, Moses In that song, uh, in Deuteronomy 32, he he speaks of Israel saying that Israel forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. It's interesting how Paul refers to Christ as the rock of his people. And so here, uh, Moses saying that they scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. Far be it from us as new covenant believers upon whom the end of the ages has come to do that for our Lord Jesus Christ, to provoke him to jealousy. As Paul then concludes his question by saying, are we stronger than he? To ask it is to answer it. The Corinthians who thought of themselves as strong. The Apostle Paul says, well, you may be strong, but you're not stronger than Christ. Don't put him to the test. Don't provoke him to jealousy. You see, when we grow self-confident and insist on our own ways, we are sure to fall. As Paul says, let the one who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. But of course, when we, when we rely upon God, the rock of our salvation, as we lean upon him who is faithful, who will not let us be tempted beyond our ability, we most certainly are enabled to stand despite all those onslaughts of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you indeed are the rock of our salvation. You are the one who has redeemed us from sin, Satan, and death itself. And you have made us your people and united us to yourself through the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that we would never forget who we are in you. May we never ignore the spiritual realities that we partake of as we enjoy fellowship together with you. And may we then be motivated out of gratitude to live lives that are worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.